0: Dogs play a role in all aspects of human history. They are part of our history, our lore, our ancient belief systems, and our families. Dogmen, black dogs, and hellhounds, werewolves and skinwalkers, shapeshifters and ancient gods. By no means extensive, this short list provides a glimpse at the dog-like creatures with which our imaginations and experiences are replete. If you sniff around long enough, it's easy to catch that scent of truth that canine-like creatures and cryptids permeate our history. Modern anthropology has often attributed this fascination with wolf and dog-like creatures to be the mythologizing and anthropomorphizing of the dominant competing predator to ancient humans, embracing what we fear to make sense of it. Archaeology has also weighed in on the role of dogs in advancing human civilization through evidence of domestication and interaction as far back as 16,000 years ago, and perhaps even farther. This modern view creates a dichotomy of perspective. We simultaneously fear the canine for the threat it provides, while we also embrace it for the unique bond and relationship it holds with humans. This is all well and good, but can that strange balancing act of love and hate actually explain our fascination with these dog-like creatures that exist in every facet of our storytelling and experiences? Or is there more to mankind's history with our faithful four-legged companion than we realize? Something that might make us more connected and more alike than we readily acknowledge today. One thing is certain, this episode has truly gone to the dogs. This time, we discuss the dogs of lore. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, theoryologists. The journey to this episode has been long and full of inspiration from other excellent sources. As you might suspect, many of these creatures have been on the idea list for episodes from the very beginnings of the podcast. In truth, any one of these cast of canine characters, they merit an episode unto themselves, into which we could sink our teeth. And probably will at some point. Werewolves and dogmen frighten us. Skinwalkers and ancient gods intrigue us with history, and demon dogs, they shake us to the core with impending mortality and premonitions of doom. Yet, the common fascination at the heart of all these creatures lies in one thing, our relationship with dogs. While these creatures may have been an item on one of my hurried lists of ideas in the early days, It was a couple of podcasts, of course, that helped to shape this discussion. The first is an off recommended uh, favorite of mine, Blurry Photos. In 2018, for the annual Blurry Photober celebration of spooky content, host David Flora released a two-part series of Dogmen Tales. In it, Blurry Photos recounts a handful of wonderfully narrated tales of dogmen hailing from Michigan and Wisconsin while exploring some of the legend and lore as to their origins. I recommended that you visit these episodes to hear some wonderful tales delivered better than I believe I ever could. The second inspiration comes from the Into the Portal podcast, with hosts Amber Ray and Andrew McKay. Now, this is certainly a catalyst for today's episode. With what became a four-part episode series... Amber and Andrew explored the stories and history of the Michigan Dogman, the now legendary Beast of Bray Road, and delved into the ancient past of legends and mythology from ancient Greece and India and beyond. Ultimately, of course, both blurry photos and into the portal come to conclusions regarding the veracity and history of these stories, legends, and experiences. And links to these podcasts are in the show notes. If you are not already subscribed to these shows, please do so. They are both as independent as Conspiracy Theorology, and both merit the audience support. Now, it may seem like I should be introducing a panel of guest podcasters for a roundtable discussion on the topic, based on my gushing introduction of these two shows. And, believe me, I was tempted to reach out with an invitation I still may in the future, but today I'm not here to recap the history and stories of these poochy predators. It would be derivative of me to build an episode on the well-researched and developed content of these other podcasts. As well, my intent to have guest podcasters would primarily be to direct you to their original episodes, which I have done so. Besides, Before we can take the opportunity to have anyone revisit their perspectives and conclusions on these creatures, we must first introduce the theoryology, which we will do in a bit. There is a final nod to be given, which is the new television series, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. While the show has not featured the dog-like Skinwalker lore specifically, at least not yet as of me recording this, it has brought new interest to the property formerly known as the Sherman Ranch, and its mysterious occurrences steeped in Native American lore and the paranormal. Importantly, the namesake for the ranch property is that of the Skinwalker, which has been seen on the ranch taking the form of a wolf or coyote. Yes, it is a History Channel show, so often the priority seems to be the character drama rather than the actual research being conducted on the property, but I still find it thoroughly entertaining and it makes this episode more timely. So, why have I taken the time to discuss all these reference sources and podcast recommendations? I've done so because I want to unleash the opportunity to explore the lore in more depth, and also give you the chance to hear examples of the more typical discussions of this phenomenon. Most researchers, rightly so, discussed the reality and feasibility of these sightings and legends, leaning on the archaeology and anthropological basis for the development of such lore and belief. As well, sightings of dogmen and other dog-like creatures tend to be explained with reasonable probabilities while leaving open the possibility that something more paranormal or supernatural could be at play. Today, we will not be exploring the creatures, stories, or sightings experienced by people throughout history. We will not delve into indigenous lore and ancient mythology as sources of origin. We will also not be attempting to define or explain what these creatures may be or how they might be defined. To try to do that here would mean another long series of episodes that would still not do justice to the centuries of background buried in the backyard with all these creature bones. That said, we should take the time to at least provide some high-level overview of the most well-known, both as an introduction for those that are unfamiliar with many of these creatures, as well as to provide scale of how truly pervasive the dog-creature lore is. After that, let's introduce some of the origin and then provide the standard explanations, both of the skeptical bent as well as of the more paranormal nature. So let's look at some of these definitions. Dogmen. Well, the dogman, also known as the Michigan dogman, describes a, a group of cryptids which are often described as upright canids. The earliest recorded use of the moniker of dogman comes from an encounter in Wexford County, Michigan, in which witnesses reported seeing a creature with a man's body and a dog's head. Dogmen differentiate from others of the same description, such as werewolves and skinwalkers, in that the dogmen are viewed and researched as a cryptozoological being without some of the more supernatural aspects associated, such as curses and transformations. The dogman truly came into the broad public sphere with the publication of the book The Beast of Bray Road, by Linda Godfrey in 1991, in which she investigates an encounter which occurred in Wisconsin. Honestly, if I were to do an episode just discussing dogman lore and encounters, I would gather up Linda's entire bibliography of over a dozen books on the subject and get her behind the microphone for a discussion. Now let's look at Black Dogs. This is from the fandom.com cryptid wiki site. The demon dog is only one of many names used to describe the ethereal black dogs that roam hillsides and graveyards. With their glowing red eyes, super strength and speed, and a tendency to trail fire and brimstone in their wake, demon dogs make for a terrifying messenger from the underworld. They are said to have been created by a group of ancient demons to serve as heralds of death, and seeing a demon dog... Some say once and others claim it takes three sightings inevitably leads to the viewer's demise. The demon dog legends date back to the time of Vikings and sightings have been reported throughout history. These sightings, which are not confined to any particular region of the world, have more recently occurred near cemeteries in multiple parts of the United States. Now I wanted to give you a slightly different perspective on the black dog. This from Wikipedia. A black dog is a motif of a spectral or demonic entity found primarily in the folklore of the British Isles. The black dog is essentially a nocturnal apparition, in some cases a shapeshifter, and is often said to be associated with the devil or described as a ghost or a hellhound. Its appearance was regarded as a portent of death. It is generally supposed to be larger than a normal dog and often has large glowing eyes. It is sometimes associated with electrical storms, and also with crossroads, places of execution, and ancient pathways. The origins of the black dog are difficult to discern. It's uncertain whether the creatures originated in Celtic or Germanic elements of the British culture, uh, but throughout European myth, dogs have been associated with death. They're bearers of, of doom. Black dogs are generally regarded as sinister now let's move on to the skinwalker. In Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as an animal. And the term is not ever used for healers. Werewolves are really an interesting amalgamation of, of other dog-like creatures. It's a creature that's sometimes a person, sometimes a wolf, usually to prey on people. In different versions of folklore, the werewolf is either a magician or the object of a curse. In much uh, modern literature and film, and we won't begin to try to list all of the various werewolf movies and books and uh, and, and the like, the werewolf is said to shape shift under the influence of the full moon and be vulnerable to silver bullets. The word werewolf derives from an old English werewolf, meaning man-wolf. This is just a few of them, and those are very high-level descriptions. Uh, but, but as you can see, there's a theme with many of those. Um, perhaps something I didn't mention with the skinwalkers that they often appear as as a wolf-like creature, um, a, a coyote or wild dog. Um, but let's get to some of the supposed origins. Uh, just just as a highlight, uh, there are often pointed to the idea of some sort of ancient indigenous lore. They're tied to ancient lore, Native American stories, uh, the first peoples of Canada, the aboriginals of Australia. Uh, We point to ancient Egypt, um, Greco-Roman mythology, Mesopotamia, and even Norse mythology. And, and all of those are pointed to the, the earliest known examples and events of these characters surfacing of, in some form or another. Uh, and and oftentimes the explanation stops there. Look, here's the origin, here's where they come from, and they're created in this lore to convey something. But that goes into the explanations, right? The, there's really two ways to look at explaining the the creation and the prolific use and even our far fascination uh, with these from a more mainstream perspective. And those those two perspectives are this. One, a skeptical one, and that's that often if these things are, are still seen uh, or even if they were used in, in, in recounted stories of the past, that often they were simply misidentification um, or just outright hoax in a more modern setting. Uh, there's some that are tied to uh, then psychological disorders, like lycanthropy, which is something that is only recently becoming more understood or diagnosed and recognized within uh, the, the psychological community of, uh, of this animalistic behavior. Uh, as well, many will simply point to religious practices and beliefs, you know, shamanistic ritual and mysticism, and say this is the foundation for these. Just animal representation of various spiritual elements and that has carried forward. Now, there is a more paranormal explanation, and in this case I like these more because they take it a step further. They don't simply say that these these creatures come from the lore and then that's it. But rather, the paranormal says that the, the, the lore itself, the stories. Come from something at actual uh, at something physical some physical manifestation manifestation or creature or being was seen and carried forward in the lore you know explanations such as tulpas, which are these you know thought forms given made physical uh, alien beings of course cursed people such as the werewolf demons and and of course cryptids. Cryptozool, you know, cryptozoological creatures, that there's a physical, actual physical creature that exists. Now, you know, this is, uh, this is the explanation typically given. In any discussion you hear on most of these topics, they're going to, depending on the preferences of, of the researcher and the you know, the, the host or, of a show or the writer, you're going to, to come to one of these uh, conclusions that they draw. Uh, at the end of of whatever you know whatever uh, discussion is is being had and and those are all good for tracing back through history where these where these various uh creature characters uh surface and become more prominent in, in whatever lore and whatever region that they do uh, and and history is replete With these things, I I just wanted to give you a few examples. We talked about Skinwalker Ranch, and that is tied to a Navajo curse uh, on a on this this property that that occurred many, you know, a couple hundred, several hundred years ago. Uh, We can look at oh, a a modern finding. There was a, a discovery, a recent discovery of Romulus' tomb. Now, Romulus was one of it was is recognized as the founder of Rome. This this tomb was a, a a memorial monument to him. Well, the interesting thing about Romulus is him and his brother Remus were raised by wolves, and uh, before returning to um, to man, and uh, ultimately through various activities and a war between the two and, and sides drawn, Rome is is established. Uh, but the the dog this this wolf uh experience this wolf raising experience is very very key, and that goes back to the beginnings of Rome. We have Anubis you know the the dog god of uh of the underworld in egypt uh Mesopotamian deities uh actually are depicted as having kept dogs that's that was the significance of dogs even then uh, is that they were companions to the gods some Out in the Middle Ages, a wonderful story that has floated around amongst multiple podcasts has been that of Peter Stump, who, uh, uh, German, Bavarian, was uh, accused of being a werewolf, transforming due to a belt that he would put on, and uh, ultimately hunted down and dealt with. Then there's the Beast of Bray Road, as I mentioned before, the very... um, very characteristic dog man sighting that took place on a uh, a rural country road, a uh, neighborhood road in uh, in Wisconsin, and uh, has captured captured the imagination of the community and ultimately, you know, of, of, of the world. This dogs have even played their part in literature, a, a very well known one. Something that was easy to pop into my mind were the Hounds of the Baskerville. Right? and that Sherlock Holmes story, and this idea of, of these deep, dark dogs, these demon dogs, these hellhounds, wolves that were hunting down, and, and uh, the need to deal with that. So, dogs play a role in so much of our lore. Uh, it was easy to name this episode, <laughs> and this is all just overview, of course, and it's an absolutely fascinating journey to dive into the dogman and dog creature lore. Hear modern stories of sightings and encounters. Compare them against ancient and historical tales. And explore the reality and origins of these creatures. We, though, as I said, are not going to take that journey. Because other shows already have. And a listen, one could make a career in this study and many researchers have. Again, I refer to the bibliography of Linda Godfrey. Proof, explanation, and reason are always at the heart of this research. Experiencers, believers, and researchers search for proof and validation through the history of ancient sightings and interactions captured within the historical record as legends and mythologies passed through generations. Skeptics bolster their dismissal of sightings as imaginings fueled by stories and legends that they contend were never meant to carry a literal interpretation, but instead capture a spiritual belief or social tradition within ancient societies. Of course, theoreology explores something much different, the source of the fascination. Well, it's time we actually get into it. Howdy, Theorologists. Well, if you are like me, then you are a podcast fan. And you have your playlist full of shows that get you through your day. And like me, you want nothing more than for these shows to keep making great content. And you want to support that effort. That's why many of your favorite podcasts use Patreon. So that you can show your support for all their work. And that is exactly why I have started a Patreon campaign for Conspiracy Theorology. For less than a cup of coffee each month, you can help the show grow. In return, you receive patron-only rewards, such as access to the Patreon-exclusive show Expanded Theorology, where we will go beyond Theorology and take deeper looks at topics discussed on the show, as well as explore other areas and new ideas, with guest hosts Candid Conversations, there will be new content each month, plus more stuff to come. If you are ready to support the show, or just curious about what else Patreon has to offer, go to patreon.com slash theoryology to check out my page. Then stick around and search out your other favorite podcasts. Now, back to the show. Gust, there are many examples of dog and dog-like representations, creatures, and characters throughout history. It is reasonable to go back to the earliest records of this lore, such as those of ancient Mesopotamia and China and India, to see the esteemed position that our four-legged friends fetched from their human companions. As well, we can understand how one can conclude that these ancient stories which reflect the early role and relationship between human and canine and point to this as the origin of later dog-like cryptid lore and belief. The predatory, fear-inducing nature of these creatures, like dogmen, are then attributed to the dominance and prevalence of wolves and wild dogs as the primary predator-competitor to modern humans throughout much of the ancient world ecologies. For humans, the domesticated dog is familiar and understood, while their wild counterparts are a mysterious and foreboding threat that prowls the darkest corners of the woods and outskirts of villages. These dogmen, black dogs, and werewolves then serve the purpose as harbingers of warning and caution. Keeping safe those that might otherwise wander off alone down poorly guarded paths and beyond the safety of city walls. This is all reasonably answers the question of where these creatures and stories originate. But why? Why do they persist? Why do they resonate so effectively to our human mind? We know other human like animal creatures exist in ancient and modern lore, but none. Not even the big man on campus himself, Bigfoot, bites into our subconscious with a mix of fear and fascination quite like our dogs of lore. Why is that? Perhaps I would contend that it lies with the prehistoric relationship humanity has with dogs and the coevolution that is accompanied. First of the predators to be domesticated, they walked alongside ancient man as a companion in the hunt and a protector in the dark. Man's best friend has healed by our side since the birth of myth itself. Surely our recognition that our furry friends still hold lineage to the wild and memory of the danger that could unleash must be the subconscious source of our fascination. There is a problem with this, though. The widely accepted and oft-touted explanation of dog domestication is not really that fear-inducing nor is it that favorable to dogs in general. The currently prevailing theory is that scavenging hypothesis, also known as the dump theory. The dog domestication dump theory proposed by Ray and Lorna Coppinger in 2001 essentially states that as early human food waste dumps uh, that formed around the early permanent agricultural settlements of the Holocene period, Scavenging opportunities brought wolves and wild dogs closer to human populations. Since those with a calmer temperament toward approaching humans would thrive under this arrangement, they would find more reproductive success, eventually, deriving the more familiar domesticated dog. Humans, of course, would incorporate these animals into their cultural behavior, capitalizing on the benefit of the resource. Since its introduction, This proposed domestication model has gained quick popularity as an explanation, and it provides a one-sided, anthropocentric scenario with which human activity was the driving factor toward the evolution of dogs away from their wild and aggressive counterparts, while framing the entire process as a whimpering opportunism which favored passive and docile wolves existing in this new world of a more dominant predator. Us. After that, I suppose all the bonding and social connection between dogs and humans simply forms out of our appreciation at the blind loyalty and the usefulness built on total dependence to their human owners. Yes, it's possible, you know, it's possible. sure. It, it really doesn't provide any explanation for the development of creatures like dogmen, encrypted canine lore, though, and and it certainly isn't a basis for our pervasive fascination with it. We domesticated cattle during this period as well, and we aren't telling stories of upright walking bovine on the side of the road, our frightening, uh, you know, frightening our children with stories of werecows. Now, (laughs) yes, I know about minotaurs. Cows have their lore as well, but this is, you know, This is rather anticlimactic. Is that the end of the story? No, because there are some problems inherent with the dump theory. In a 2018 paper published in the International Journal, Dog Behavior, authors Christoph Jung and Daniela Portal put the dump theory to the test by exploring the basic assumptions of the hypothesis. Spoiler, they don't find support for the scavenging model, but rather conclude a much more interesting possibility. This is an interesting paper that is easy to read and follow, and it's linked in the show notes. Let's review some of the assumptions of the dump theory and Young and Portal's determinations against these assumptions. First, the time range of dog domestication and when it started. They contend that the scavenging model uh, pictures dogs coming up around uh, 8,000 years ago when humans started the epoch of of agriculture and permanent settlement, basically around the Fertile Crescent of uh, Mesopotamia. Those human settlements produced the first food waste dumps, which should have provided the the niche ecologically for the dogs to derive from the wolf. Uh, But there is clear evidence, they point out, of much older dogs, which push back that origin at least... To 15,000 years ago when um, human ancestors were still hunting and gathering. Today, it's more commonly accepted that dogs derived during the Paleolithic period, really thousands of years before the epoch of, of agriculture started, and maybe more than once even. All of that has happened trying to apply then the dump theory to move it back further in the in the timeline has its problems. Number two, the Paleolithic people did not produce these food waste dumps, and that's the challenge that occurs with the with the new understanding of the timeline. Paleolithic uh, humans did not build uh, big slaughtering dumps or, or kitchen dumps um, since they were often nomadic uh, with uh, regularly rotated summer and winter camps they didn't produce any dumps containing food. Uh, You know, it's quite unlikely even that the butchering of the large prey uh, even took place at the campsite, because the butchering place is probably right uh, separated or done at the time, right at the uh, uh, location where the predators were felled. They certainly couldn't shoulder a killed mammoth. Um, Nevertheless, you know, ancestors sometimes did have issues with waste, uh, and, and, Young Portal point out that archaeologists have described four different types of dump sites that have have are are, uh, dominant during this Paleolithic period, and one is stone tool factories. So that's stone tool waste. Uh, In some cases, there have uh, number two is that there have been bone dumps found. Uh, Third, they've found um, shell midden, which is just uh, uh, material for you know, again, manufacturing of, of tools and products, um, they've even found mammoth bone accumulations. But where they have found these, they, they haven't had any tracks uh, of, of bites from wolves or dogs. So it's not as though there's any evidence that these, um, that dogs did come and scavenge off of these mammoth bone accumulations. Uh, there, you know, there just wasn't enough. and And that gets into the other point, which is that, there's never enough. Uh, the the schedules that the Coppingers proposed uh, that for this ecological niche, uh, starting with, with settlement, uh, agricultural settlement, um, are are faced when faced with the challenge of pushing the timeline back to hunters and gatherers, throw a oh a, a wrench in the required populations. Because even if nomadic hunters may have temporarily produced enough food remains, they point out, it couldn't have been enough to feed a, a founder group of wolves that would that would have had enough time to reproductively favor a domestication, you know, move to a dog. Paleolithic hunter clans consisted only of 20 to 50 individuals, oftentimes, and uh, they were often on the move following these nomer- nomadic... Uh, big herds of, of large bovids and, and mammoths. Uh, it would have required uh, a, a much larger population for, for these dogs to live off of. And um, I, I, the dump theory with the Coppingers proposed that it, it, it would have required uh, that the dump site provide food for up to 20 specimens of, of wolves, 20, 20 wolves in a pack, in order to have that reproductive population to found a new wolf type. And that would require uh, that each dog have the waste and feces of 14 people, each dog. Well, that puts at least 280 people in uh, a single group, a human group, for this wolf-dog founder population. And that's six times more than was average in these groups and, and prevalent. Um, So, essentially, the calculations don't work when it comes to the numbers. What are some of the other issues, though? Well, they also address the the question of why wolves and not foxes. This scavenging hypothesis argues that it really was only the wolves which occupied this new niche provided by human food waste. Um, And even if it were true, uh, scavenging and hanging around human settlements with wolves, with a temperament allowing them to approach these dumps, you know, and, and making for generation to generation that they're more tolerant, uh, such that dogs derived. Uh, it seems it, what's left out is the possibility of any other scavenging species to have done the same thing. Uh, it's clearly evident through the research that the modern dog comes from these, you know, an ancient subspecies of wolf. But why didn't the the dog come from something like a hyena or? bears or jackals coyotes or even foxes why were foxes not domesticated they were all living in that time period in proximity to the to humans and they were uh definitely prevalent for uh for scavenging you know foxes uh young and portal point out that foxes can be tamed which was which was shown through a a a farm fox experiment well they you know, it seems that they, with them being smaller than wolves, living near and inside the camps, they would have posed no potential risk of death for uh, human clan members or, you know, even the children, less likely. So, um, even currently, foxes scavenge in, in downtown areas of big cities. So, if scavenging and hanging around human settlements is crucial for this, this domestication process, foxes and, and Jackals would have been much better candidates for the self domestication process of the waste dump uh, but but it's likely that neither of them uh, were ever domesticated in any culture at any time now the, the scavenging hypothesis has this glaring hold that it can't explain why the wolf and not um, not anything else. Another thing that they bring up is is the um, evidence of prehistoric working dogs. So, again, the dump theory uh presupposes that that this scavenging would have begun around uh, 8000 years ago. But by that point, we have evidence of dogs and humans working together with these specialized like sled dogs working with hunter-gatherers 8000 plus years ago in certain areas of of Europe. Um and you know there there was with evidence such as that would indicate that domestication occurred much, much earlier, thousands of years earlier, uh, such that at that point a relationship could have formed so uh, long before again, there was enough of these settled sedentary populations to develop a a dump sites that would have been conducive towards scavenging. Additionally, Young and Portal addressed the occurrences of honor and respect being paid to dogs and question why would there be honor for a scavenger? Archaeologists have found a lot of Paleolithic graves containing dogs, um, or dogs and humans together, uh, buried um, with the same honor as, as though they were members of the family, or were recognized as Persons within the clan that they were part of the group, uh, and they were extended a honor and respect. It's curious to think that so much respect would have been shown for a scavenger that was just hanging around, and ultimately tolerated uh, and accepted as a as a useful domesticated animal. In short, Young and Portal conclude that there is not. Any substantive evidence in support of the dump theory. Rather, they propose their own hypothesis, active social domestication. This model, in their words, describes self-domestication as an active, socially based process concerning both species. In preface to this theory, they provide some basis. Let's look at those because this is when the dog-human relationship starts looking very interesting. Let's look at the aspect of emotional bonding. The paper offers the argument that not only is the timeline for domestication off, but also that the evidence of the social arrangement between humans and dogs does not support a relationship so base as an animal hanging around scavenging on waste and feces. Burials of dogs go back to Upper Paleolithic periods, which reflect shared lifetime and respect between species. With the dog being treated as a person, a member of the family, even early cave paintings depicting wolves and dogs in the presence of a hunt seem to depict the animal as a fellow hunter working in tandem, not as opportunistic scavengers waiting to grab the remains. A notable aspect to the emotional bond between dogs and humans is something known as the will to please. It's a trait in which dogs actively exhibit an interest in working together with their people. Dogs may have been utilized for activities such as herding, sledding, and hunting as early as 15,000 years ago. It takes a long time for a wild wolf to go from observant predator collaborating with humans to willing sled partner. Clearly, the process began a long time before. Also, they address this question of wolves and not foxes. In that vein, other contenders that would have thrived as scavengers under the dump theory do not provide the emotional bond necessary. Foxes never domesticated naturally. They are loners in contrast to highly social wolves. Young and Portal also put forth jackals as an example, and they point out that white jackals are social animals, they hunt primarily small game, such as rodents, and they do so alone. This would not have coincided with Paleolithic humans that hunted collectively for big game. When humans arrived in the Eurasian region, populated by mammoth 40,000 years ago, not having any idea how to hunt such an animal, they would have observed the local predator that does on how to do it. And that leads us to the neuroscience, Jung and Portal point to studies that show the key role that something called the stress axis played in domestication. Simply put, the increased pro-social contact and interactions between wolves and humans epigenetically promoted better executive functions, that's mental function and activity, and improved social learning capability in both Species. Quote, Thus, tamed wolves became domestic dogs by integrating themselves into human social structures, and humans increased their social and cultural practice, also described as human self domestication syndrome. End quote. Essentially, since humans and wolves both lived in a very similar social structure during the Paleolithic, such as highly social family groups, collective rearing and of offspring, and group hunting of similar prey, they were in position to develop bonding and highly influence each other. Which leads to the final point by Jung and Portal. The neurobiological requirements for cooperation existed between humans and dogs in a strangely similar fashion. Brain activity observed of modern dogs exhibits Very similar mental function as humans, which enables them to interact and communicate. We can understand their emotion, and they can understand ours. Dogs read our expressions and moods. They use communication signals like odor, and expressions or pointing uh, and gazing to understand what is being communicated. The steps toward this connection began over 40,000 years ago. In contrast to the idea of passive taming through acclimation of each other due to scavenging 8,000 years ago, there appears to have been an active social joint evolution between the two species that goes back 400 centuries. Now this gets us back to the active social domestication model. And I'm going to let Jung and Portal summarize their hypothesis because they do it so well. It's a bit of a longer quote, but, but it, it it explains it well. This unique kind of domestication was primarily an interspecific social process. Pro-social interactions reduced the activity of the stress axis via epigenetic modulations. The wolf integrated himself into the way of life of Paleolithic hunters. It was an active process on both sides, evolutionary continuity, of mammalian brains enabled both human and wolf mutual interactions, which reduced stress on both sides and eventually favored what we call domestication. Both of them wanted to cooperate, to live together, and to work with each other. Advantages are known on both sides, but not primarily in immediate effects like better hunting success, protecting, watching, or warning. Lower permanent stress levels promote the frontal brain functions, contributing to better executive function and improving social learning capabilities in both species. This allowed human associated wolves to grow into domestic dogs. End that quote. Okay. And we're and we're done with, with the paper. Let's let's see how that uh how that works for us with our topic for today. I mean, in light of this evolving perspective on the coevolution the domestication and social development of dogs and humans it does seem reasonable to draw some conclusions you know without barking up the wrong tree one dogs were not dumpster divers in fact it was their similar social structure and behavior that uniquely positioned them to be best suited alongside encroaching humans two domestication was mutual and cooperative not one sided three Human society evolved alongside the dog. We domesticated together. And for the parallels are not coincidence. As mankind's timeline continues to expand backwards, so does our understanding of the dog-human relationship. So, what does this new understanding of dog domestication provide as insight into our fascination with creatures such as dogmen and demon dogs? Well, For those skeptical of any paranormal explanation, the active social domestication model still provides the rational means of understanding. Both species were so influenced by these early collaborations with each other that the long-lasting impact can be seen across multiple areas of study. Anthropological, sociological, archaeological, and neurobiological evidence is copious. Wolves recognize this influence Through physiological change and evolution that promoted this new dynamic with advancing humans. Humans, in turn, recognized this evolutionary partnership by incorporating dogs into society and a greater understanding of the world around them. Just as we learned how to hunt and survive through observation of wolves, so too could we explain how the world came to be, how societies formed. How knowledge came to be given. Likewise, we could always be reminded of the dangers of those dark corners of the wilderness by looking to our canine companions, remembering that they were there in the beginning, when both species were much more wild and untamed. A 40,000-year-old genetic memory recalled through the anthropomorphized dogman and the harbingers of black dogs that dangers are never too far away. Now, if that satisfies your curiosity, you can leave the conversation here. It's certainly compelling and persuasive. The dogs of lore no longer appear in ancient tradition whole cloth out of nowhere, nor is it inexplicable that they appear in traditions and mythology across the globe seemingly independently. Dogs weren't domesticated 8, 9, or even 10,000 years ago. Dogs have been with us, metaphorically or otherwise, For 400 centuries, no matter how humans spread across the globe and what cultures influenced others, our cold-nosed companion came along for the journey. But, is that really the only explanation? Is it really just that tangible and rational? Sure, we have explained the pervasive nature of the dog-like creatures of legend, lore, and mythology, but why does the fascination still hold? Why do we still see dogmen? And why do they still hold such a lure? Certainly, urban legend and social memory cannot be the only explanations. Modern sightings cannot all be misidentifications or outright hoaxes, can they? Epoch's old fascination certainly explains the success of Linda Godfrey's books on dogmen, but it doesn't explain why she has a topic on which to write in the first place. Does dog domestication theory provide any sort of answer? Well, I think it might. And the answer is found in the long history through which it unfolds. The key is the concept of the mutual evolution we have discussed. Yes, that used to identify the social evolution of humans and the physiological and behavioral adaptation of wolves. But could it imply more? This is where things get paranormal. Perhaps, just maybe, the dogmen of legend are dogmen of fact. Hear me out here. 40,000 years is a long time, and we have learned that neurochemical effects of wolf-human interactions caused evolutionary changes in both species. Perhaps some wolves, when observing their human counterparts, rather than adaptation toward taming behavior, exhibiting triggering of physical adaptation... Perhaps upright walking and the benefit of dexterous hands, maybe? Maybe it was the humans that found genetic favorability in those predatory muzzles full of sharp teeth or pronounced body hair that provided better protection to the elements while reducing reliance on external coverings for protection. Crazy idea? I I know. Evolution like that takes hundreds of millions of years, right? But not so fast. Adaptation is a funny thing. Sometimes it happens really fast. A quick search yielded a list of modern evolutions that are occurring at an accelerated rate. The coy wolf of southern Ontario, Canada, is the product of coyotes pushed into wolf territory by European settlers. These animals didn't just crossbreed and adapt. The result is a stronger, faster hunter. Then there's the green Anoli, which is a small lizard native to the southeastern United States. My, my backyard is full of them in just fifteen years. An invasion of brown Anoli from Cuba into Florida has caused the native uh, Anoli to develop larger tow pads and the ability to move higher up in trees away from the new competition then there's elephants in the last hundred years elephants are beginning to lose tusks entirely oh and humans have rapid change too since the 1960s the human birth canal has been getting smaller with nearly a 20 percent increase in the number of women with birth canals too narrow for non-surgical birth okay so animals can evolve quickly when the opportunity or need arises but i know what you're thinking one problem if a dogman creature did evolve from our co-domestication model, then certainly after 40,000 years, this new creature would be large in population. It should be at least as populous as wolves or bears or wild cats in ecologies that could support them. Besides, the wolf is a pretty well-designed lethal predator, as is a human. Both species function amazingly well as is. Natural selection wouldn't find a need to jumble attributes together, especially so quickly. Well, I have one last item to toss into the idea bucket. Relatively recent ideas in evolutionary research. The concepts of neutral evolutionary theory and biased gene conversion. While natural selection theorizes gradual change to DNA over long periods of time, it's now understood that this process if at all correct, only affects about 8% of our genome. Mutation in the rest of the genome may occur in freely changing frequency by chance, with biased gene conversion causing rapid acceleration of these chance genetic changes. Of course, I'm no geneticist, and the sources I found discussing these new concepts were well above my head, so please feel free to reach out to me if you can explain them in layman's terms. I would appreciate it. Still, just on the surface, these new ideas give rise to the possibility that random chance can produce extreme mutation. Couple this idea with neurochemical impact on the stress axis that wolves and humans left on each other, and the genetic memory may just be there with enough of an imprint that random chance could produce a dog-man anomaly. No large population needed. Perhaps werewolves were a strange genetic event that occurred in some human populations, causing enough physical and behavior effects to warrant people to identify these people as something other than human. Maybe the skinwalker of native legend was the product of some humans, through largely unknown practices, to induce such a transformation from recessed genetic memory. Maybe the dogs of lore are not so improbable after all. Well regardless, fact or fiction, the dog-like creatures of both ancient and recent past captivate our imaginations, inspire fear, and make us peer deeper into the darkest shadows just beyond the borders of civilization. We ponder dogmen because they are us. Just as dogs adapted into our society, we adapted into theirs. Black dogs offer warnings. Just as those ancient wolves provided to our ancestral selves, the ancient gods walked with dogs or were themselves dog-like to teach us, guide us, and show us a path. Just as prehistoric man learned from the wolves how to hunt and survive in new terrain. We did not simply anthropomorphize a fearsome predator, nor did we simply tame a wild scavenger at our convenience. The dogs of lore have been with us since the very beginning, and they certainly won't be going away anytime soon. Okay, that will do it for today. I hope that was not too much of a jumbled overload of information. What do you think about exploring our fascination with dog like cryptids through the lens of dog domestication theory? Do you think there is an explanation to modern sightings? Have you had a sighting of your own? Let me know, email me, contact at conspiracytheorology.com or find me on the socials at TheorologyPod. All the info can be found at conspiracytheorology.com including how to support the show on Patreon and links to the merchandise store for t-shirts and other goodies. And don't forget to share the show with others. Music as always is by Adam Henry Garcia at adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com so until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.